Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast is sponsored by Raycon. Raycon wireless earbuds start at half the price of other premium audio brands. Raycon is offering you 15% off all of their products, and here's all you got to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com slash gold. The Dow Jones rose again today to finish at another all-time record high. Dow up almost 300 points closing at 32,778. The NASDAQ, on the other hand, was down about half a percent today, 78 points, as the rotation out of growth into value continues. And what is leading that rotation is the relentless rise in long-term bond yields, which continued again today. The yield on the 10-year closing at a new high post-pandemic, 1.635 is where the yield closed the week. The high print on the day was one spot 642. So just off the highs in yields on the 30-year yield, we're just above 2.4. We got to 2.404 was the high. We closed just a tick below that really at two spot 402. So we are now higher than the yields were when David Tepper came on CNBC to save the stock market by claiming that yields had topped. Well, on my podcast, I said that I didn't think Tepper was right and the market has already proved him wrong because yields are now higher now than they were back then. And there is no end in sight. Interest rates are going to continue to rise. Uh, The Federal Reserve is really playing what amounts to a game of chicken with the bond market, because if you look at the balance sheet numbers, they came out again yesterday. Yes, the balance sheet was up, I forget, 20, 30 billion, something like that on the week, but nothing compared to the enormity of treasury bonds that are up for sale. And if the Fed doesn't step up the pace of its um, bond buying, then 
yields are going to continue. In fact, we got news yesterday out of the ECB that they are going to expand their QE program. Remember, Australia was the first central bank to do that. Now they're followed by the ECB. Why is the ECB doing this? To artificially limit the rate of increase in interest rates. Why? Because there's so much debt out there, thanks to the central banks artificially suppressing interest rates. We have a lot of debt. And now that the market is trying to increase the cost of servicing that debt, the central banks are at it again by trying to interfere with market forces in order to prolong the bubble. So I think the Federal Reserve ultimately is going to have to blink in this game of chicken. Otherwise, the yields are going to continue to go up. The the 10-year, I think, could hit 2%. I don't know, within a few weeks. I mean, 1.635 now. And if the Fed does nothing, it's going to be a quick trip from two to two and a half and then three and then four. So at some point, the Fed is going to have to step up. I mean, they don't have to. I mean, they shouldn't. They should just let the whole house of cards collapse. But that's not how they operate. I mean, they may let it start to collapse. The Fed may wait until rising interest rates are an obvious problem for the overall market. See, right now, it's not a problem. I mean, it's a problem for certain stocks, certain tech stocks, but the overall market is still benefiting because of this rotation. And remember, I described that dynamic before. The problem with growth stocks that have no earnings today is you're buying earnings in the future. And the higher interest rates are, the less you're willing to pay for future earnings today. What you want when interest rates are rising and there's inflation, which is the reason they're rising, is you want companies that are earning money right now so that they can pay you a dividend today that you don't have to wait for. And more importantly, if you have a company that is earning money right now because they're selling products, providing services that people need, people want, they can raise their prices. You have pricing power. If you don't even have any earnings, then it doesn't matter whether or not you have pricing power because what difference does it make? You're not earning any money. You're not sharing your earnings with your shareholders. But if you are earning money, then you can raise prices and earn more money. And so those dividends can go up to help offset the inflation that you're experiencing. So it could take a much bigger move up in interest rates before the overall stock market is scared enough for the Fed to come running to the rescue. But in the meantime, uh, rates are going to keep rising. Now, sometimes rising interest rates act as a competition for stocks. People might think, well, I can get 1.6% now on a 10-year treasury, so maybe that looks attractive. Maybe I'll sell some of my stocks to buy a treasury. Well, if inflation is 2% or 2.5% or 3% or it's actually much higher than that, but what's so attractive about 1.6? I mean, that's what I said to this other theory, nonsense theory that David Tepper had was that the Japanese are going to load up the truck with U.S. Treasuries because they can finally get a positive half a percent a year uh, over the next 10 years. Who the hell wants that? I mean, if you believe inflation is going to be under a half a percent average for the next decade, I mean, I I don't know where you're coming from. Nobody is going to trade a stock that has a dividend yield of four, five, six, seven, eight percent. I mean, those stocks are out there. We're buying them. Nobody is going to trade those stocks to clip a coupon at 1.6 because once you buy that bond, you're locked into that rate. The bond's not going to go up as inflation goes up but you own a stock, those yields are going higher. So at this point, bonds are so overpriced 
that it doesn't matter if they keep going up. If the 10-year goes to 2%, who cares? 2.5%, no one's going to take it because they can see the inflation. And again, it's not the nominal rate that matters to the investor. It's the real rate. And if you're not blind and you're not just simply distracted by the sleight of hand that the government pulls with the official numbers and you actually open your eyes and look at what's happening in the real economy to the cost of everything that you want to buy, you know that a 3% yield isn't even going to come close to covering the annual rate of inflation. So people are going to stick with equities for a lot longer before they really start to look at bonds as being tempting. In the meantime, you still have this belief out there that the Federal Reserve is in a position to do something if inflation gets out of hand, which it's not. I mean, the markets believe that the Fed is going to have to deal with this uh, impending inflation threat by raising interest rates. That's why the dollar uh, is rising. That's why gold was under pressure. In fact, what really pressured gold this morning, and in fact was a catalyst for the big sell-off in the bond market, was the release of the producer price numbers for February. And the expectation was for prices to rise by four-tenths of a percent, which was a big slowdown from the 1.9% surge in the month of January. Well, we did get the slowdown, but it wasn't quite as big. Prices were up 0.5%. And year over year, the producer prices are now up 2.8% year over year. That's a big jump from the 1.7% that we had year over year January. We're now 2.8%. And those numbers are going up. And it beat the consensus, which was looking for year-over-year gain of 2.6%. Even um, if you strip out food and energy, we are now at 2.5% increase in producer prices over the last year. And my guess is that these numbers today are probably even less reliable than they normally are. I mean, I think the data is probably really skewed. I really don't think the government is capturing the real extent of the price increases. And of course, they always, you know, smooth them out with hedonics and substitution and all kinds of stuff that they do to try to pretend that prices are actually rising uh, at a rate that's slower than they actually are, which is funny because you have the Federal Reserve constantly complaining that there's not enough inflation. Meanwhile, the government is cooking the books to hide the inflation that there is so that they can pretend it's lower than 2%. And then you have the Fed saying, oh, inflation's too low. We need more, right? They're all working together to justify all of this money printing. But the investors at this point, they're not fooled by that illusion and they don't want to buy these bonds and particularly foreigners don't want to buy these bonds because they're the ones that are going to see the losses first when the dollar rolls over and, and, and collapses, which is going to happen. I mean, we got a rally today in the dollar, but it wasn't that big a rally. And then the, the rally lost steam late in the day. Look at the gold sell-off. Gold was down about 20 bucks almost immediately after these numbers came out. Now, it was down before the numbers, too, but it tried to rally back. And then when the number came down, it got smacked down again. Silver was down, I think, as much as 60, 70 cents at one point this morning. But as I'm recording this podcast, gold has recovered and it's now up about four bucks on the day. It got down to as low as about 1700 and now it's back at about 1727 And silver couldn't quite make it back into positive territory 
but it's only down about 15 cents, almost all the way back up to 26. So it seems to me that we've really washed out a lot of the selling here. A lot of the people who just assume the Fed's going to successfully battle inflation, maybe they're flushed out. At some point, it's the people who understand that they're not going to successfully battle inflation. They're not even going to battle, let alone secede. The government is going to concede the battle, right? They're not going to fight. They're not going to get in a ring with inflation. They can't win. And so inflation is going to knock out uh, uh, the Fed. It's going to knock out the dollar. And so gold's got to go through the roof. The dollar's got to go through the floor. And people are going to figure this out. And I think that, again, is why you have this money moving into value stocks, particularly non-U.S. value stocks. That is the real rotation. It's not just out of growth into value. It's out of U.S. growth into global value. Get out of the U.S. and get into foreign stocks and buy the undervalued stocks that have good dividends, which, of course, is exactly what we already own. I had been anticipating this rotation for years, and I got way ahead of it. And now, finally, the world is moving to the investment thesis that I have already adopted. In fact, it's funny to watch everybody trying to explain away the price increases that we're already seeing. I mean, first of all, a lot of people want to say it's just temporary, right? It's just, you know, we're bouncing back uh, from COVID. And that particularly is what the Fed is saying, that they can ignore this blip up in inflation. They're going to look beyond this mountain to the valley of low inflation that lies on the other side. So they're not going to panic. Then you have a lot of people talking about the supply shortages, right? We don't have enough supply. We don't have enough computer chips. There's all sorts of things that we don't have enough of. And people want to blame that for the price increases. But it's not so much that we don't have enough stuff. It's not a shortage of stuff. It's a surplus of money, right? Whenever you print a lot of money and that money that you're printing is not tied to productivity, right? People are getting money, not because they help produce things, but just because they got a check from the government. So when money is being printed, but goods and services aren't being created and provided, well, there's always going to be a shortage because there's a lot of money that wants to buy stuff and there's not enough stuff to buy. But it's not because there's a shortage of stuff. It's because there is a surplus of goods. I mean, look, if I was on a desert island or, you know, let's say Gilligan's Island, you have the castaways there and, you know, the howls are there and they bring suitcases full of cash and everybody has all this cash and you can say, oh, yeah, but there's a shortage of everything. We don't because there's nothing there. It's not that there's a shortage. I mean, you just have all this money, but money doesn't create purchasing power. That's the problem. The Fed can print all the money they want but they can't print purchasing power. They can't print the goods that you want to buy with the money. The free market has to produce those goods. And the problem is that's not what we're doing. We're not producing goods. You know, it reminds me of this old piece of uh, Soviet propaganda. And you never, know, the Soviet Union always had to deal with the fact that they were telling their people how great it was in the Soviet Union and how horrible everything was in the United States. And of course, this is back in the 1950s and 1960s, you know, when America was at its zenith of wealth and, and prestige and the American standard of living was unequaled in the world. And the Soviets are trying to get their people to believe that they're better off than Americans. Well, sometimes the Soviets would see photographs. I mean, they were lucky they didn't have the internet or the whole thing would have collapsed sooner. But we still had uh, photography back in the 50s. And so sometimes somebody in the Soviet Union, they would see pictures 
coming from America or maybe a movie. And if you saw a store like a supermarket in America and the shelves are just stockpiled full of stuff, there's so much stuff, all these brands, everything that you want, you can buy on these shelves. That's because of capitalism. That's because of a free market where all these individuals are trying to make money and they're trying to do that by satisfying the demands and desires of all these consumers. And of course, the consumers would have nothing to buy but for the effort of all those producers who made all the stuff that was on the shelves, right? It was the production that enabled the consumption, not the other way around. Well, the way the Soviets used to explain this dichotomy, because you know, while American shelves were full of stuff, the shelves in the Soviet Union were bare. There's nothing there, right? They're empty. And this is what they used to tell their people. They said, well, the reason that you got all these shelves in America full of stuff is because the American people are really poor. I mean, people are so poor in America, nobody has any money. And because nobody has any money, this stuff just sits there on the shelves. It's just piling up because nobody can afford to buy it, right? But in Russia or Soviet Union, where the people have great government jobs and everybody has money, the minute there's something in the store, people rush in to buy it. And so the reason our shelves are empty is because our people have so much money that the minute there's something to buy, they go ahead and buy it, right? That's what they said. And then what they said is that, well, you know, in America, they'll never solve their problem. Like the people will never have enough money, right, to buy all this stuff. But in the Soviet Union, eventually we'll have a lot more stuff and then we'll have things to spend our money on. But of course, this is all a bunch of nonsense. You know, the Soviets didn't have a shortage of stuff more than they had a surplus of money. But why did they have a shortage of stuff? Because they didn't have a free market to produce it. America had such a vibrant free market, we had all the stuff we needed. The money didn't mean anything. The money is just how you divvy up the stuff that you have. But if you don't have any stuff to divvy up, doesn't matter how much money you have because the money is worthless. And that's where we are right now. We're trying to claim that prices are going up because of shortages. Of course, there's always a shortage when you have a surplus of money. You don't think there was a shortage of everything in Zimbabwe when they had that hyperinflation? Of course. And what also happens is as money really starts losing value, even if you have stuff, you don't want to sell it. Sell it for what? For money that's going to be worthless before you have a chance to spend it? So there's a shortage of everything as you have more and more inflation. But the problem isn't the shortage of stuff. It is the abundance and the surplus of money. And that is what's going on. But expect to hear continuous scapegoating uh, and denial from everybody in Washington and on Wall Street trying to explain away what's going on with everything but the truth. And the truth is that we are experiencing the consequences of all the inflation that we've been creating. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. And those consequences are about to get much greater as a result of this new $1.9 trillion stimulus bill that President Biden, I think, just signed either today or yesterday. So this is now a done deal. 
It is the law. And of course, it's going to end up costing the government a lot more than $1.9 trillion. I mean, the government never comes in with anything under budget. In fact, just one uh, aspect of this that I think is going to be exploited is in this bill, it says that if a student loan is forgiven, none of that forgiven debt is included in your taxable income. That's always been the case in the past. If a lender forgives your debt, the amount of loan that's forgiven is now taxable income in that year, which always made it problematic because then you'd have to pay a big chunk of money and obviously you probably don't have it. But now I think it's like a four or five year window where if the lender forgives your debt, it's not taxable income. Well, how would people exploit that? Well, let's say I've got a job and I tell my employer, hey, instead of paying me, let's say you owe me $1,000 for working. Instead of paying me the $1,000 where you have to pay a payroll tax and I've got to pay the income tax, why don't you just pay $1,000 to my student lender, right? Pay down my loan and write that off on your taxes as a loan payment for your worker. So you write that off. And then my lender can say, oh, okay, because my employer paid $1,000, we can forgive $1,000 of your student loans because we got paid uh, by your employer instead. Great. Now that gets forgiven and that's tax-free. So there's all sorts of ways now that people can game this system to try to uh, limit their taxable income. And of course, that limits revenue to the U.S. government. Right. So a lot of things. That's just one example that they probably haven't anticipated how people are going to exploit this little loophole. But I'm sure there's much bigger ones than that. And so this thing is going to cost way more than uh, $1.9 trillion. And of course, this is just the down payment. You think this is the last spending bill that Biden's going to put his John Hancock on? No, it's the first of many. And the absence of money is not going to stop them. I mean, they don't care. Again, as I mentioned before, the government's already spending $8 trillion and collecting $3.5 trillion in taxes. Now they're going to be spending $10 trillion. I mean, who cares about the taxes? The taxes are irrelevant. The government spends whatever it wants. It doesn't matter what it collects in taxes. So since it can have whatever it wants, well, the Democrats want a lot of stuff, right? Because the voters expect a lot of free stuff because that's why they sent the Democrats to Washington to bring home that bacon. And so that's what they're going to do. And they think the Fed is just going to pay the whole cost by printing money, which means we get it all for free. We're not. We're going to pay through the nose through inflation. In fact, when I was listening to Joe Biden's uh, 20-minute televised presidential address last night, he was talking about the period that we just came out of, this COVID period, as being one of the darkest days in American history. Like it was a really tough, horrible time, you know, like World War II. Of course, it was nothing like World War II. I mean, I don't want to diminish the fact that a lot of people did lose their lives to COVID. Now, I think the vast majority of those people probably would have died anyway. They would have just died of something else. But there are certainly some people who would have survived and would still be alive today had they not gotten COVID. Now, again, maybe had they not gotten COVID, they would have just got a different flu and they would have died from that. I mean, who knows? But again, I don't want to be unsympathetic to the people who died or to the families of the people who died who lost a loved one. But when it comes to an economic perspective, right, a lot of people benefited from the pandemic. I mean, no question about it, right? A lot of people got more money during the pandemic than they were earning 
before the pandemic. A lot of people who lost their jobs thanks to overly generous extended unemployment benefits, a lot of people got a paid vacation instead of having to go to work. And their paid vacation paid them more than their job. I mean, that is a huge win. So for a lot of people, this was a big positive. This was not the big financial burden that fighting World War II was. Apart from the fact that so many young men died fighting World War II, that clearly would not have died had they not been sent off to battle. I mean, you're talking about a lot of men, teenage boys, their young 20s, right? Most of the people who died from COVID were octogenarians. They had already lived their lives. When you're talking about a 20-year-old with his entire life ahead of him having to die in a war, that's a much different situation. But the financial burden of World War II, the sacrifices, the rationing, you couldn't even buy goods in World War II because everything was rationed because all the resources were being uh, diverted to the war effort. Everybody was asked to pay higher taxes during World War II. Everybody was asked to loan money to the U.S. government. So the country really sacrificed during World War II, right? So when the war ended, you know, it was time to party because we no longer had to foot the bill of fighting the war. Well, it's different with COVID. We partied during COVID. I mean, technically, we didn't have the big gatherings, but, you know, we had vacations. We stayed at home. We bought all sorts of stuff on the internet as we were binge watching stuff on Netflix. That wasn't much of a sacrifice. The government postponed all of the costs of dealing with COVID-19 into the future. And of course, we're now in that future and we're going to have to deal with those costs. So America's darkest days are not behind us. They are in front of us. The big problem is not COVID, but the fact that we didn't pay the cost of dealing with COVID. We're going to pay it now. We kicked that can down the road and now we're catching up to the can. That is what the bond market is telling you. We printed all this money. We took away the financial pain from the people who lost their jobs. We gave checks to the people whose businesses were disrupted by COVID. That didn't happen during World War II. If you had a business, if you had a bar or a restaurant and all your customers were off fighting a war or they were staying at home, right? You know, you, you just had to suck it up and get through it, right? You didn't have any government help. But today, or during this COVID crisis, the government came in with help for everybody. But nobody's taxes got raised to pay for that. We just printed all this money. So again, we didn't get that for free. There is a cost to be paid. And it's going to be paid in the form of higher bond yields and higher consumer prices, which is going to usher in a period of stagflation, which is, I think, going to be better referred to or more accurately referred to as an inflationary depression. That is where we're headed. And of course, because we didn't really feel all of the financial pain, the government numbed us to the pain, we actually made it worse. A lot of governments ended up imposing far stricter lockdowns because the government was bailing everybody out than what would have happened had they had to immediately absorb the consequences of their own decisions. So this self-inflicted wound is a lot bigger than it otherwise would have been and now the pain on that wound as all this financial monetary Novocaine wears off is going to be much, much worse. So we are headed for the dark days. They're not behind us.
We're all spending a lot more time these days staring at our screens, especially me. I'm looking at stuff all the time, and I, every once in a while, I need a distraction. But of course, unplugging yourself is usually easier said than done. That's why one of my favorite ways to rest my eyes and still get the content I need is by putting on a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds and listening to some great content. So that's why I've teamed up with Raycon and recommend their wireless earbuds. In fact, you'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order at buyraycon.com gold. So whether you're catching up on your favorite news podcast, binging on an audiobook, or powering through your workout with a pumped up playlist, a pair of Raycons in your ears can make all the difference in the world. Raycons are built to perform anywhere and anytime with water, sweat resistant construction and Bluetooth that pairs quickly and seamlessly. And with enough battery life for six hours of playtime, you're good to go. But the best part is that Raycon makes great sound accessible to everyone with wireless earbuds starting at half the price of other premium audio brands. No dangling wires and stems to get in your way. In fact, you don't have to take my word for it. Listen to what my seven-year-old son, Preston, has to say. Preston, tell my podcast listeners about Raycon. Um, so when I went to the gym with my big brother, Spencer, um, I tried on the earbuds with the wires, but it didn't fit me. But the Raycons did, and you don't have to like unplug it from the thing. And you could, all you have to do is you could, when you want to get out, you don't have to take your time to like take it out. You could just keep on walking and take it out as you're walking. So you think my listeners should buy a pair of Raycons? Yeah. Yep. Will you love yours? Yeah. Are they easy to use? Yeah. What's what's the best part about the Raycons? That they're really easy to connect to. All right. Well, take it from a seven-year-old. If he could figure it out how to use them, anyone can. Raycon is now offering 15% off all their products for all my listeners. And here's what you need to do. Go to buyraycon.com slash gold. That's it. You'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. So feel free to grab a pair and a spare for a friend. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash gold. Buyraycon.com slash gold. Yeah. Say buyraycon.com slash gold. Buyraycon.com slash gold. <laughs> Oil prices settled down a little bit on the week. They closed last week at 66.09. That was the high for the move. We did pull back. I think during the week we got below 63, but we recovered and we closed above 65. The uptrend is very, very strong on oil. We are headed a lot higher. This is also part of the inflation that the Federal Reserve has unleashed. But as I said on my last podcast or one of my podcasts last week, I think last Friday, even though the price of oil is going up, the supply is not going up. Look at the rig count that came out today. It was a much bigger drop than the drop we got last week. In the prior week, North America rig count, there were 544 rigs drilling for oil. Despite the fact that oil closed the week better than $65 a barrel, the rig count went all the way down to 518. The big drop was in Canada, where the rig count went from 141 down to 116. Uh, Gulf of Mexico went from 14 to 13. North U.S., uh, we went from 403 to 402. Not a big drop, but still a drop. 
Why aren't we drilling more oil now that the oil price is higher? Because we don't have the money, because we can't afford it. It's too expensive. And the investors who funded the shale boom in the past got wiped out when the market crashed and they don't want to step up to the plate again. Either they don't have the money or they don't want to gamble with it because they're not going to put a bunch of money into drilling oil when they don't know what the price is going to be in the future. What if the price collapses like it did before? So they're too gun shy. They've been burned in the past and they're not going to step up. So we're going to keep on getting uh, higher and higher oil prices and we're not going to get an offsetting increase in domestic production. And so we could talk about an oil shortage all we want, but the problem is a surplus of money. Yes, the Biden administration will compound the problem by imposing new regulations that make it even harder and harder to drill for oil. But what are Americans going to do for oil? Well, we're going to take all this money and buy imported oil. And so our trade deficit is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, I pointed this out from the very beginning. I said from day one, the policy era of the Federal Reserve, as soon as COVID started and they started expanding money supply and stimulating, I said that is the opposite of what they need to do. The Federal Reserve, and I pointed this out earlier, the Federal Reserve was created for three specific, I think, purposes. But one of the main ones was to create or supply an elastic money supply. And what an elastic money supply meant was a money supply that expanded and contracted along with economic activity. So as we were producing more stuff, the Federal Reserve would print more money and then you know prices would be relatively stable. Otherwise, uh, prices would drop. But when production was coming down and the economy was shrinking, the Federal Reserve would shrink the money supply because otherwise prices would go up because we would have less stuff. So the Fed was supposed to smooth out the business cycle, keep prices relatively constant over the course of the cycle, and money supply was not going to grow, right? It was going to expand when the economy expanded and then contract when the economy contracted. So overall, maybe the money supply would grow at about the same pace as the overall economy. That's what the Fed was originally established to provide. But of course, today, it provides the opposite. Today, the Federal Reserve expands the money supply when the economy is good, and then it expands it even faster when the economy is weak. So it's ever expanding. It's the opposite of what the authors of the Federal Reserve Act intended. And in fact, had they written the Federal Reserve Act to authorize this particular type of money supply, endless money printing, it never would have been passed. Nobody would have signed on to such an outrageous uh mandate. But that's exactly what we have now. And so I mentioned back then on my podcast that because the economy was contracting, because a lot of people were not going to be working and not going to be producing, and the supply of goods and services were going to go down, the proper response by the Fed was to shrink money supply, cut government spending, right? So the supply of money would go down with the supply of goods. Instead, they did the opposite of that. They increased the supply of money as the supply of goods and services was decreasing. And now also what happened is as they loaded up Americans with stimulus money, because a lot of Americans weren't leaving the house, they didn't spend all the money. They held on to it. That's why the savings rate has shot up. It's not because Americans are now a bunch of savers. It's just because they didn't have the opportunity to really spend. 
But now, as they're starting to venture back out into the economy, that money is still burning a hole in their pockets. And they're going to spend that, but now they're going to spend that on top of these new checks that have yet to arrive. And this stimulus is much bigger than any of the stimuluses we had during COVID. And this is when the economy is reopening. So none of this money is going to be saved. I mean, some of it is going to be gambled on Bitcoin or, or NFTs, but the vast majority of this money that we get now, plus the money that they still have left over, that's going to be spent on goods and services. And where are a lot of these goods going to come from? Because we're not producing them ourselves. They're coming from foreigners. And that means we're going to flood the world with dollars. And contrary to what David Tepper said, the world is not excited about taking those dollars and buying our treasuries. They don't want anything to do with our treasuries. They're going to dump those dollars onto the foreign exchange markets and the dollar is going to collapse. And of course, when that happens, gold prices go ballistic. Although before that happens, the gold market is going to sense that at some point and it's going to start going up even before the dollar really starts to crash. But when the dollar crashes, it's just going to add fuel to the fire that's powering the gold move. But I want to finish up this podcast maybe on a little lighter note and talk a little bit more about these non-fungible tokens, these NFTs. I talked about them on my last podcast because I was talking about the fact that now people were able to buy my tweets, not just my tweets, anybody's tweets. Well, non-financial tokens are now all the rage, especially if you happen to watch CNBC, which I would not recommend. I mean, I watch it because I need material for my podcast. And I also like to see uh, what the average investor is being told. And in this case, you know, CNBC is just a platform to hype up crypto and crypto-related assets. A long time ago, I dubbed them uh, Crypto Network Bitcoin. Uh, but now it is also uh, non-financial tokens. But what really sparked uh, this new frenzy of coverage was an auction that concluded yesterday of a digital uh, image, a, you know, by an artist who goes by the nickname Beeble. And um, this particular uh, form of you know digital art right, was auctioned as a non-fungible token. And the winning bid was just over $69 million, which of course seems like an insane price to pay for something that you could copy for free. I mean, because the whole thing is digital. So a copy of a digital image is identical to the digital image itself. I mean, the whole thing is is, is just, you know, uh, on a computer. And so what difference does it make if you have the actual original one with a cryptographic signature or identical copy of the same thing, right? And so this thing sold for $69 million. The buyer I found out today, or it was revealed, was actually a crypto investor who goes by the name Metacovin. I mean, that's, I guess, his Twitter handle or something like that. But this guy actually has already bought some of these uh, Beeple uh, digital artworks. And what he's done is he's used them as the basis for tokens. He's issued tokens backed by the art. And then each person owns a fraction of this digital image. Uh, and then they sell off, you know, in pieces, which of course, you know, is even more ridiculous than owning the entire thing is owning a fraction, but who cares? I mean, you own a fraction of nothing. So it doesn't matter how many fractions of nothing you own, it's still nothing. This is a massive, 
mania. This is a bubble. These things are not going to have any value. You know, I'm getting into these arguments on Twitter with a bunch of people who are so deep into this crypto bubble that they, 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 they can't think rationally about anything. Like I'm hearing people say, well, you know, it's like the difference between the Mona Lisa and a poster of the Mona Lisa, right? Because you can buy a poster of the Mona Lisa and that's real cheap, right? So you don't have to own the actual Mona Lisa. And so what people are really buying is scarcity. And so what difference does it make if I have an original signed Beeble, right? Even if a million people have the exact same thing that I do, I own the original. And so mine is much more valuable, except there is a huge difference between owning the original digital image and identical digital copies is that the original means nothing. It's digital. It, it, there's nothing there. When you own the Mona Lisa, and of course the Mona Lisa, nobody owns it, although it's owned by the French government, I guess, or it's hanging in the Louvre and it's been there for quite some time. But when you own the Mona Lisa, you own a piece of history. You own a 500-year-old painting painted by one of the most famous people in all of history, Leonardo da Vinci, a great artist, an inventor, a forward thinker. I mean, he is renowned. The Mona Lisa is probably the most iconic piece of art that exists today, right? You have 10 million people every year that visit the Louvre. I think 80% of them are only there to see the Mona Lisa, right? Do you think in 500 years, anybody is going to fly to Paris and wait in line to see a digital image, to see an NFT? No one's going to give a damn. Just look it out on your computer. I mean, there is something about being in the presence of the actual painting that da Vinci painted with his own hands. It's an actual canvas. He held it in his hands. He applied the paints personally with a brush, right? And this is a 500-year-old object that after 500 years is still intact. I mean, this is what gives it value. This is what gives it something unique. I mean, a digital image will be intact in perpetuity. I mean, who cares in a million years if humans are still here, there's nothing special about a digital image and it can be copied an infinite number of times and be exactly the same. Yes, a poster of the Mona Lisa is not identical to the actual uh, oil painting. But even if you had another painter who can paint something on a canvas with paint and make it look exactly like the Mona Lisa, it's not going to be it because uh, da Vinci didn't paint that one. He didn't hold that one in his hand. You know, So there's nothing special about that. And there's a big difference. There's nothing special about this Beeble digital uh, image. Nothing whatsoever. I don't think the person at the end of the day, years from now, somebody who owns the original one that sold for $69 million, I don't think that's going to have any more value than the 69 million copies that are there on the internet that anybody can have at the click of a mouse. And it is amazing to me that so many people don't get this. I mean, so many people are okay boomering me. They think because I'm a baby boomer, I don't get this new digital reality. And if you thought, you know, this was crazy enough, look what's going on with this sports memorabilia. I was watching on CNBC today. I watched the interview with Rob Gronkowski, and then I watched another interview 
with Patrick Mahomes, right? And so Gronkowski was on there shilling the auction that he's having right now. You can go online and look at all these uh, digital sports cards, right? They're like, you know, baseball cards, football cards, except having a, a real card, a piece of cardboard that you can hold in your hand Well, you just get a digital image that you can keep on, you know, on your computer, on your cell phone. But you can look at these things and people are bidding for them. $500, $1,000, I think $7,000. Most of them are one of a series. Like they'll have 87. And so you can buy one of 87, two of 87, three of 87. And there's, I don't know how many different ones there are. I mean, I, I scrolled through it. There's a whole bunch of them. And if you just look at them, they're barely any different from one another. I mean, yes, each one is unique in that the other ones aren't exactly like it. But you know what? They're pretty damn close. I mean, if you actually had some of these cards, real cards on on, um, cardboard, and you tried to play a game of concentration with them, uh, it'd be very difficult to remember where they are because there's very little difference among them. These things are never going to have any value. I mean, yeah, if a bunch of fools want to buy them now, the only one that's making money is Gronkowski, who's smart enough to sell them, and the other people who are working with them. You know, of course, you know, in order to buy them, though, you need Ether, because Ether is how it's trading, which in a way, you know, I think that big sale of that Beeble, I mean, because the guy that bought it paid in Ether, and probably Beeble still has the Ether. And so, like, you know, you have these crazy numbers because people are buying overpriced digital art and they're paying for it with overpriced digital currency. You know, it reminds me of that old joke about the guy who tells his friend that he's got a $10,000 dog. Meanwhile, his dog is just, you know, a run-of-the-mill, you know, house dog, his pet, you know, nothing special. He's not like a premier show dog or something, just a regular old dog. He's like, yeah, I got a $10,000 dog. I'm going to go sell it. And he's like, ah, oh, you're never going to get $10,000 for that dog. He says, yeah, I'm going to sell it for $10,000. And then he comes back and he tells his friend or his friend says, hey, did you sell the dog? Yep, got $10,000. Really? You got $10,000 cash for that dog? And he's like, well, I I didn't get $10,000 cash. I traded it for these two $5,000 cats, right? So what does it matter, right? It's all funny money. And that's how I feel about this stuff. But these cards, these Gronkowski cards or these Mahomes cards, and what the cards are is they supposedly, you know, they have statistics on there, like, which championship game is this from? And it's going to commemorate how many yards he got in the game and how many catches he made or whatever it is. Who cares? You don't need this card to have that. You know, what made cards, you know, rare baseball cards very valuable is that they survived over the decades. I mentioned this. And that they survived without being bent, without being torn, without being stained. Because remember, when the kids got these cards, they played with them. They didn't just, you know, put them in a box somewhere and never touch them. They played with the cards. They used them. They were toys. And so most of them are not in great condition. The only ones that are valuable are the ones that are in pristine condition. Well, every single digital card that's ever sold will be in pristine condition for eternity. So they're not going to have any value. And look, even if there's a limited number of Gronkowski cards, there's an unlimited number of athletes who are selling all these things, and there's no limit. How many athletes now and musicians are going to rush to create these NFTs now that they see somebody, uh, you know, paid $69 million? You know, and I, you know, people are telling me I see somebody on Twitter saying, well, it's the pride of ownership, right? There's no pride in owning this, right? I mean, there is pride in owning a rare painting that you can hang on your wall, 
right? And that would impress your friends that you own something so rare and so unique. But I don't think anybody would ever be impressed by this. All you can do by owning one of these things is proving to your friends how big an idiot you are. And maybe if you want to say, yeah, I'm the guy that was dumb enough to win this auction. I was the one that was willing to pay more money than any other fool. So I want to commemorate that. If you're so proud about being the biggest idiot and you want to have some token to remind everybody of what a fool you were, yeah, then maybe there's some value in these cards. But the crazy thing, too, about the coverage, right? Because CNBC is talking about this all day long. Meanwhile, nonstop grayscale commercials. And there's some other uh, Bitcoin uh, companies now that are advertising. So I don't know, maybe half their ads now are coming from the crypto community. But they bring these guys on that are selling this nonsense and no skepticism on the interviews. Nobody's like, oh, come on. You got to be kidding. This is ridiculous. This is a bubble. No, no, no. They're eating it up. They are spoon feeding these guys. They're, they're, they're throwing them softballs so they can easily hit them. I mean, they're not doing anything to challenge these guys about how ridiculous this is. They're helping these guys really take advantage of their fans, take advantage of the CNBC audience or the people in crypto and getting them to buy these things. Now, to the extent that they just buy them with cryptocurrency that they weren't going to sell, what difference does it make? Right? I mean, because the Bitcoin is going to collapse, the Ether is going to collapse, these cards are going to collapse. So at the end of the day, I don't think it matters which of these crypto assets you have, you're going to lose everything anyway. But it's the people who are actually opening up accounts and taking their actual dollars and then buying Ether that they didn't have and then buying these cards because they think they're going to get rich off these cards. Those are going to be the real losers. And in fact, what I, what I think will end up happening too is the guy that paid $69 million uh, for this Beeple, he's going to, you know, he can issue 69 million tokens. Maybe he can get people to pay two bucks a token. And now he can double his money and you'll have 69 million people who think they're going to get rich owning one sixty-nine millionth of nothing. Because again, there is no special feeling between looking at the original. I guarantee you, if somebody has the original and they show me that one, it, it's not going to be any different than any image that I can see uh, online. There is a big difference. I've seen the Mona Lisa. I've been to the Louvre. I've stood in front of that painting. And a lot of people have. And it does give you a certain feeling. You experience something. You feel like you're a part of history to just be there, to see it. I mean, people stand there, you know, because, you know, they, they, they don't want to give up the feeling that you get. That's why everybody's going there, right, to be a part of something. But no one is going to have that with any of these digital things. They are nothing. And it's these, the young kids who think, I, I, I just don't get it, right? I'm old and I don't understand it. No, no, they're the ones that don't get it because they're young and inexperienced and naive. They're willing to fall for this crap. I am old enough to know better, right? I understand a bubble when I see it. This is just modern tulip bulbs. I mean, I can imagine some young people back in Holland during the tulip bubble. Come on, Grandpa, don't you understand? This is a flower. This thing has got a lot of value. And they go, well, why? Well, because we say so. Right? I mean, that, that's why it has value, because we think it does. And every, look at the price. I mean, you, you know, you're just too old to get it. This is, this is the new economy. It's all based on tulip bulbs. Get, you're a dinosaur, Grandpa, right? That's what they were probably saying. And, you know, but th this is what we're going through. But this is all symptomatic of this massive financial bubble that was created by the central banks, in particular by the Fed. 
And I've, I've said it before, but there's an old saying, whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. And to me, it seems like we're living through a period of complete insanity. And this is the epitome of it. This non-fungible token on top of the crypto bubble, this has got to be it. As I said in the last podcast, peak insanity, we've reached it. And because we are at peak insanity, then it's clear to me that we are on the verge of our complete economic destruction. (music) 